Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It has been one of the best starts to the year on record for U.S. high-yield bonds. Uh, returns exceeding 5%. The extra yield investors are earning to own the debt versus safer uh, notes has compressed to the lowest in months. Joining us here is uh, someone who can weigh in on whether it is time to start pairing this riskier debt around the edges. That is Greg Hahn, President and Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management, normally in Indianapolis, but joining us here today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Greg, what's your view on this? Is it time to sell high-yield bonds? Oh, no. We actually, um, right now, we're actually still buying high-yield. We think there's value there. The the um, spreads have come in since the fourth quarter, but there's still room for it to move and volatility's down. So with spread vol down, we think that you're going to see more spread contraction. So what are some of the sectors in the high-yield space that you're looking at right now? Uh, so energy, telecom, both uh, there's areas there that we like. Um, we've been in the uh, in the financial side, higher quality, the double B space on financials. Are, are there any sectors that you're just no matter where the value you're just staying away from? Um, no, we'll look at anything. I mean, I, honestly, it, especially when you look in the utility space and it, with what's going on, Pacific Gas and Electric, no, that that area we look, we think. Wait, there's, wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. You're buying PG&E bonds not, right now? No, not right now. So here's the thing. But look at SoCal. <laughs> so look at SoCal Ed and Mission Energy. So in other words, just because the other utilities that are getting slammed because of PG&E's issue, they're in order to get out of the bankruptcy, they've got to fix the legislation because you can't you can't leave bankruptcy and and still have that legislation in place where the the utility is liable for the next fire because you haven't fixed anything. So they got to fix it. And I think that bodes well for all the southern utilities. So basically, this is a bet buying the bonds of those other California utilities is a bet that California will be forced to change its legislation so that these utilities are not held responsible for all of the damages of wildfires. Absolutely. And that's fascinating. That is. That is a, I would say, a gutsy call because you're basically waiting for Sacramento to come and kind of make it all right for you. Well, and think about it, though. In a capitalist society, can you really have a publicly traded entity that is not playing by the same rules as every other state in our in our form of capitalism, I don't think it makes sense. So I want to shift gears a little bit. We've seen a rash of deleveraging uh, recently. We've seen a number of companies that are triple B rated who have agreed to pay down debt. I'm thinking of some of the big communications companies, AT&T, uh, Verizon, you're laughing. Uh, I will find out why right now. Why are you laughing? <laughs> so a- AT&T um, has the debt level of Portugal. So and the, if you look at it, it, the, the total size of AT&T's debt is the equivalent of one of the top 25 sovereign indebted nations. $170 billion or something like that? Something like that. So in other words, this deleveraging is... <laughs> they, is yeah, they have to do it in order to, stay, on, in order to yes. stay triple B rated. Now, really, this this is a cusp credit. Um, we're going to expect a write down on the direct TV side. So they have to, they have to delever this. Wow, interesting. Interesting. How about like a, another name that's similar to that Comcast? That's... That, that looks like a better profile. Yeah, we like Comcast. And this this whole space, this is this is amazing. So in our generation, to see the shift in technology that's taking place by going to streaming and what's what's happening with all the cord cutting, this is um, so to, to be fully integrated like Comcast, Disney. This is this is going to be interesting. So you sound pretty sanguine right now on U.S. credit. 
So you, well, okay, we've had a heck of a rebound. So we're, we're benefiting from that. Uh, I'll be honest with you, December was tough because we gave up a lot in the, in the last two weeks of the year. Well, let me show you how tough it was. Um, I believe in, when you were here in December, <laughs> you said, quote, the financial position of the U.S. is a disaster, end quote. Have we changed? As you, has no, your view thanks changed? for bringing it up. <laughs> no, you're absolutely, no, we haven't changed. We still think it's a disaster. But, and, and there's no, so it's going to be interesting because we're going to come into the elections now. So 2020, we're going to start to hear dialogue on it. The debt levels, is, it's not part of the, the dialogue that's taking place right now, but it, you can't ignore it. So here's my question, especially at a time when J.P. Morgan and now what we're seeing with Toronto Dominion Bank and Canadian Imperial Bank of Canada both out today with their results, all raising issues about deteriorating creditworthiness of some of their borrowers. Yep. J.P. Morgan said that they're starting to uh, tighten their credit uh, credit conditions a little bit just to, to make sure that they don't deal with a lot of losses in the next downturn. What do you think could or, or will cause the next credit crisis and, and when? Yeah, so we, and we talked about this last time too, is we're on the front end, we think we're on the front end of a, a potential shift in the credit cycle. We still believe in cycles. So it's going to it's gonna show differently this time because tr- traditionally it would go through the banking sector. We'd see um, an increase in uh, loan reserves and higher non-performing loans. That actually hasn't happened. So we've, we're starting to see the front end of it. But uh, we think it's going to be expressed in the public markets uh, through leveraged loans. So we're seeing, you know, one of the telltale signs is, is structured security issuances up, CLOs are up, and um, we're seeing credit light uh, loans so, or I'm sorry, covenant light loans uh, that are coming to market. So we, we, these are these are all signs, the volume increase. And uh, we'll look back, I think, on vintage 2017, 2018, and 2019, vintage structured securities could be problematic. How about, you know, we have the Fed on the sidelines. We have, you know, earnings. We're pretty much done earnings. Do you think the market is fairly discounting some of the geopolitical issues out there, whether it's, boy, it's China today, North Korea today, Brexit yesterday? What's... Absolutely absolutely not. And this is the part I just I just don't understand. I'll confess this. But growing up in the in the business in the 80s and 90s, when you had geopolitical events, it moved markets. But to have Brexit, which is probably one of the single biggest events in the capital markets in the last 30 years. And there's I think Barclays last week had a reserve set aside for it. But it's the only bank that we've seen that's put reserving against it. Corporate, you know, the corporations are not set up for it. And I don't, I don't think the markets are really discounting it. I think the markets are looking at it, you know, this is going to get fixed somehow. Or the markets are profoundly bored by all of the discussion <laughs> that's been going on for two years. And they're saying, show me something I can hook my teeth into. Otherwise, forget about it. Uh, just real quick here, emerging markets, are you bullish or bearish? So we, uh, we this is, Lisa, this is one area we really want to go into. It's lagged the last three years, and we still think it's early. And what we're looking for is credit flow. We're looking for credit that's flowing into the emerging economies, and we're not seeing it. But we think we're on the cusp of that. So I think by the end of the year, we're going to have an increase in that. Where in particular? For what? what so we're, we credit? look at the big four. So it's, it's uh, and we're not in, the, but the big four are China, Russia, India, and Brazil. And it's, I think China is going to dictate what's going to happen here. So Interesting. Very, very good. We'll take. We'll have. We'll have you back when you're starting to, you know, get into your emerging markets, and we'll we'll certainly take a look at that. Greg Hahn, President and Chief Investment Officer, Winthrop Capital Management, based in Indianapolis. But we're fortunate to have him here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, here in New York. Thank you so much, Greg.
Well, the U.S. and China continue to discuss discussions about possibly having discussions about trade. It is so unclear to me where we are in this process that I have to call upon our own Dr. Sam Natapoff, who is a frequent visitor here to our uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Dr. Sam Natapoff is president of Empire Global Ventures. All right, Sam, what what's going on? We have this deadline, March 1st. It's going to get kicked off, the can will get kicked uh, with tariffs. What are you looking for for real progress here? Well, it's very clear that President Trump needs to listen to more Kenny Rogers because he doesn't know how to hold him and he doesn't know how to fold him. We have some sense of what the deal is going to be when uh, President Xi Jinping will come to Florida to Mar-a-Lago to sign this agreement. One, they're probably going to agree to hold the yuan stable and not devalue in order to make Chinese goods cheaper to come into the U.S. market. Two, the Chinese will clearly commit to buying you know, hun- you know, billions of dollars or more of U.S. goods. They've already committed to buy, I think, 10 million tons more soybeans, which is about $3.5 billion already this year. But since the U.S.-China trade deficit is going to be $400 billion this year, that's less than 1% of that deficit. So what's that really going to mean? Yesterday, Bob Lighthizer announced that there's now a mechanism by which they will handle this back and forth internally and bilaterally instead of going through the WTO. In other words, the U.S. has a chance to reimpose sanctions if the Chinese don't do what they say they're going to do. So there's a lot of talk. And the, the top line thing is, Donald Trump wants to lower the U.S. trade deficit, which doesn't really mean anything. The things that really matter, the intellectual property issues, the forced technology transfer, the protection for U.S. companies going to do stuff in China, none of that is being discussed, and no progress will be made on that. Why are those big items not being addressed? Those are the ones that move the needle. Those are the ones that corporate America is most concerned about. How? Why are they not on the agenda? To be clear, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer has dedicated 30 years of his career to focus on this issue. He did this on Japan first. He's doing it on China now. He's deeply focused on that issue. He is being overruled by the president of the United States, who's so desperate for a headline that he will undermine the structural integrity of the U.S. economy going forward. All right. uh, Let's listen to something uh, that Bob Lighthizer said, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, uh, speaking speaking yesterday in front of uh, the Ways and Means Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. Take a listen to what he had to say. I'm not Pollyanna. I don't believe that this is going to solve all the problems between the United States and China. We have very different systems. They're in a process of reform, or they're not. Depends on who you talk to. If they're in a process of reform, we'll, we'll make headway. If they're not, we're going to go right back to having problems. That was U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer speaking uh, in front of the House Ways and Means Committee. I have to wonder, uh, Sam, just how many allies... Bob Lighthizer has, among other people who could kind of force President Trump to uh, to sort of consider his point of view a little bit more. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is on his side. The American Association of Manufacturers is on his side. The problem is none of those people work in the White House. And even if they did, Donald Trump wouldn't listen to them. Well, will it be considered a victory if President Trump gets some sort of agreement that has to do with soybeans? In no. other words, will markets rally? That, I mean, because that's essentially how President Trump is, is evaluating it, right? Uh, It is, but markets are smart and markets are going to understand that this is lipstick on a pig. And pig is, of course, the number one consumed meat in all of China. So nothing's going to change. All right. Who, when you you take a look at the two sides and you take a look at some of the bigger issues that are out there, maybe they don't have to do them all at once, but piecemeal, maybe over the next couple of years, 
isn't China becoming increasingly incented to make some changes? Their, their economy's slowing, maybe even slower than people believe. Isn't there a growing incentive on China to actually come to the table on some of these issues? Uh, yes, there is tremendous incentive for China to change. That doesn't mean there's incentive for them to compromise with the United States. In 2018, the Chinese economy slowed to 6.6% GDP growth, which is the lowest recorded since uh, the 1990s. Uh, over the last three months, factory activity in China is the lowest it's been in since the 1990s. There's a tr there are tremendous indicators showing that the Chinese economy is slowing and that Xi Jinping has to do something. Right. But uh, forgive me. The, the one thing is he's under tremendous domestic pressure himself politically. He opened the path for him to be able to run for a third and fourth term as president. But if he doesn't deliver, that's not going to come true. So just to push back a little bit on this idea that President Trump is going to uh, make an economic mistake on, on pretty big proportions if he just leaves the trade agreement at soybeans and other agricultural and other uh, imports and exports. Uh, isn't this just the opening salvos of ongoing discussions? Isn't the idea that the U.S. and China can have some sort of agreement laying the groundwork for, for future uh, negotiations over the more substantial issues? It could be if President Trump were consistent enough to hold the line, because the lesson the Chinese just learned is we're going to go through two years of economic turmoil globally, and in the end, we'll get a deal that we would have signed two years ago. All right, so Sam. Oh, oh sorry. So Sam. They're going to Palm Beach, Florida, lucky them. Um, they sign a deal, good for them. Um, what are next steps in the China-US trade negotiations? Uh, Robert Lighthizer will again in, in, intend and try to put pressure on the Chinese to make structural changes, particularly on the intellectual property side, the technology transfer side, and the treatment of foreign companies inside China. MasterCard and Visa cannot function in China. And that was one of the things that people were looking at in this negotiation to see if the Chinese would open up their domestic market. They're not going to. The question is, Robert Lighthizer is in a difficult position because he just got his legs cut out of, from under him by his boss, and the Chinese assume they'll do that again. Well, that, that's what I was going to say, is sort of, you know, that it seems like uh, some of these issues are going to have a hard time getting resolved. Can you give us a sense of why Visa and MasterCard can't operate in China? Uh, this is a specific regulatory issue that both the, the Chinese Ministry of Finance and other Chinese regulators have uh, not granted them a license to operate inside China. So that is a, a Chinese governmental decision. Uh, and it's, we'll call it a non-tariff barrier, if you will. Dr. Sam Natapoff, thank you so much for being here, as always. Dr. Sam Natapoff is president of Empire Global Ventures, talking about the latest uh, between the U.S. and China trade negotiations, the dollar gaining uh, a little against the U.N. today. Right now, let's shift our focus to the retail sector. We've gotten a host of earnings from TJX to Macy's to JCPenney. And really, the question becomes, are we seeing a turn in the tide? There were a lot of short sellers targeting these companies. Uh, are they being blown out of the water and forced to offend with actually a relatively healthy retail sector? Joining us now is Evan Clark, Deputy Managing Editor for Women's Wear Daily, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Evan, uh, is there a big takeaway so 
so far from all of the retail earnings we've gotten so far? Right. So I think uh, going into the holiday season, there was big expectations around sales. And I think that hasn't really panned out. I think sales were, were not quite as bad as the overall number that came out from the government. But it, it's it, they really didn't turn out the way that the industry was hoping. So I think the overall story that we are seeing right now is that retailers are being cautious. They've spent a few years really kind of spending to ramp up their online businesses. But now they're starting to uh, hit that kind of exp hit the expense line a little bit. They're cutting back. They're being more cautious going forward on how they spend their money. Uh, for instance, uh, Macy's just cut $100 million out of their expense structure, kind of reducing their top management and sort of simplifying things there. So that will help them be more flexible should the economy turn, you know, it can when and if that, that happens. So Evan, really over the last several years, as I listened to earnings conference calls from these retailers, it's a combination of uh, cutting costs, as you mentioned with Macy's, reducing, um, you know, footprint closing stores. We heard that from JCPenney closing 18 stores. What is your sense for how much more the industry has to go in terms of reducing its footprint of physical stores to deal with what is now a e-commerce, a growing e-commerce economy? Yeah, you know, I don't, the numbers, I don't have off the top of my head, but the, the U.S. economy historically has had something like six times more retail space per capita than the next closest market, which is the U.K. I think that number has come down some lately, but I think there's still a long way to go. I, just where the right balance is, I don't think anyone really knows, but the buzzword we get in retail right now is experience. So everyone's trying to figure out how you know, the, the stores and the website are very clearly, you know, you've got the same brand, the same products, but they're very clearly different experiences. So when stores do get people, when retailers do get people in their stores, what do they give them? How are they keeping them there? What kind of, you know, what are they doing to engage them? That's why we've seen a whole lot of food come into retail. We're just seeing more sort of like testing with a Canada goose has cold rooms where it drops to minus 20 or something and you put on their jacket and see how cozy you feel. So I think that that, so I don't know. The answer is I think more, I, I think we'll see the, the footprint kind of go down some more. I don't know when it ends. And that, that's sort of the $10 million question. I think this has also uh, been an earnings period where uh, there's been huge divergences between the winners and the losers. I mean, I'm looking at Macy's. You mentioned uh, them. Shares down 17% so far year to date, whereas TJX, which is banked on the whole experience of treasure hunting uh, and finding bargains, up nearly 15%, right? And so it, it definitely has been... Uh, a sort of shaking out of the of the sort of weaker players and, and sort of putting them aside and saying, you know, you still need to figure out what your experience is, what your sort of uh, claim to fame is versus the winners that are consolidating that power, right? Right, absolutely. So I think you mentioned the treasure hunt at, at TJX. I mean, TJX has just been a phenomenon. It's been growing tremendously. So it's kind of really transcended the, its initial kind of you know, uh, business model of taking leftover goods in the market and selling it. And they've really had this, you know, national brands at a discount price and it's like new, it's new and it's, the frequency is very fast. So if you go to TJ uh, uh, Marshall's today, it's different. It's going to be different next week. So I think that that model continues to resonate. So people want brands at a good price and like a, you know, an environment that is fun or engaging in some way. And I think, you know, Macy's is very much uh, trying to kind of 
figure out how they do what they do and how that works for the future. I mean, they're, they're working very hard. They've got their program where they're really trying to sharpen, they sharpened 50 of their stores to kind of give, give a d- different look to shoppers. And they just expanded that to 150. So, so they're, you know, the change is there. They're trying to be, um, they're trying to figure out exactly where they need to go. I mean, that's the big question in retail is exactly where do you go? what is the model of the future that kind of really works? So I think that we see a lot of testing across the industry and then kind of incrementally moving forward. I mean, across the board for retail, the question is, can people change fast enough? How about just the consumer? As we go through here, these fourth quarter numbers, what what are these results telling you about how the consumer is right now? Real quickly, 20 seconds. Right. Yeah, the consumer is is still strong. They still have money. They just have a lot more stuff to spend it on. They've got, you know, the new iPhones are $1,000. There's Netflix costs every month, so there's more places to put the money. Interesting. Thank you very much. Uh, Evan Clark, Deputy Managing Editor, Women's World Daily, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Thank you so much. Well, the automobile, once both a badge of success and the most convenient conveyance between points A and B, is falling out of favor in cities around the world as ride-hailing and other new transportation options proliferate and concerns over gridlock and pollution spark a revaluation of privately owned cars. To help us dig into this issue is David Welch. David is our Detroit Bureau Chief uh, from Bloomberg News coming to us from Detroit. And this is, I have to note, is the cover story of the March 4th uh, Bloomberg Business Week coming out. So, David, thanks so much for joining us. Are we at peak car? We're getting pretty close. And uh, so here's here's what's going on. You see, in the U.S., we, we hit record car sales two years ago. Uh, well, going on three. 2016, still healthy levels, but it's been kind of slowly coming down ever since. And most companies kind of see that happening for a while. Last year in China, uh, we saw it go backwards for, geez, the first time since I've been covering the industry, and that's more than I care to admit. Uh, China will continue to grow kind of long term, but the year's a double-digit growth. It's kind of behind us. So those are your two biggest markets. Europe, you're not going to get growth there. Japan, no way. There will be growth, uh, according to General Motors, in places like Russia, India, South America, but all those are problematic. India has huge infrastructure problems when it comes to cars. Russia has political instability problems, and South America has currency instability problems. So you boil all that together, and even if there is some growth, it's going to be slow. And really, the bottom line is car companies, to gain any kind of sales, they're going to be beating each other over the head to gain market share. There's not a lot of organic growth out there going forward, so they've got to find other ways to show investors that they're growing the business. So I guess, David, there's a broader question here, aside from some of the trouble spots as far as the the growth generators, which is, How much of a threat are ride-sharing services? How much have people ditched their cars altogether and just shifted to uh, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world? It hasn't happened in mass yet, but it is happening. You're seeing some families that maybe had three cars go to two or two down to one. And it's not a lot, but it will happen, and especially as people continue to move to cities. You know, already the U.S., more than 70% of people live in urban areas, and that's supposed to get up to about 80%, and that's accelerating in China as well. 
And, you know, if you live in a big city, having a car is just onerous. Insurance tends to be really expensive. Parking is expensive and just kind of tough to find. So that that's why urban dwellers have often not had cars, and as more people move that way, uh, they, they're just going to give them up and, and not have them. So Honestly, that, that you, is a David, David, your understatement about how difficult it is to have a car in the city, I mean, really, it's aside from alternate side of the street parking, insurance, people bashing into your fenders. Oh, my gosh. There's Parallel great parking. great Seinfeld episodes about George <laughs> trying to find a parking spot. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> I've, I've, I've lost years of my life. Paul, save me. Exactly. So, so David, how about mass transit? Is that contributing to... Um, you know, the decline of the car. We saw this week in California where uh, they ran into some trouble getting their railroad uh, system approved. Is mass transit making any inroads on the traditional auto ownership? Actually, mass, mass transit is sort of one of the victims in all of this because as more people go to Uber and Lyft and other services, people who make pretty good money have been opting for those services instead because, yeah, hey, look, if you take an Uber or Lyft, you don't have to sit on a platform when it's 10 degrees out or 110 degrees out and wait for a train to come by. Uh, someone picks you up on your schedule. So people have actually left those services uh, the same way they've, they've left uh, owning their own car in some cases. So you see in some cities that they're actually putting in taxes on ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft and then funneling the money to public transit because it's it's become an issue that way. Um, you know, you're going to see that battle play out. Public transit authorities do not want to see, they don't want to go into a lost position because everyone's going to Uber and Lyft. And then the cities themselves don't want to see terrible congestion because people are, are, are getting those cars. And look, this is one of the mitigating factors for peak car. Yeah. If people give up owning a car to take Uber and Lyft, you're going to need more Uber and Lyft and Waymo and maybe GM cruise cars and you know services we don't even know exist yet. As more of those come into play, you're going, they're still going to be building those cars. They just might get Foxconn into building the hardware in, you know, in, instead of selling the services. Foxconn, right. of course, is a company that makes your iPhone, and Apple makes all the money off the content. So, David, just real quick here, I'm wondering, so we may not be heading for peak auto. No, but, we kind uh, of are. But, well, but Okay, so we are, but we're not heading for like a nosedive where autos go out of fashion and, and nobody drives anymore necessarily, at least not in the next couple of years. Right. Are we hitting, though, peak truck in 30 seconds? The idea of, you know, perhaps they're just too pricey and there are just too many of them out there? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I Not yet, but we're going to get there before too long because the average price of a vehicle is over 36000 in the U.S. It's a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah. All right, David Welch, thank you so much for being with us. David Welch is our Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.